for NCR this week, Courtney and I are here to remember Tom Parada, a longtime colleague of ours, primarily from the Wall Street Journal, who traveled a tour covering the sport very ardently and passionately along as part of our core people in the American press corps uh, who passed away, as you may have heard last week, at the age of just 44 after a long, tough battle with brain cancer. Courtney, this was news that we sort of knew was coming, still still tough to be hit by. And we're going to use this episode to share remembrances of, of Tom from us, but mostly from other colleagues as well, and a couple people he covered. But yeah, it was it was awful news to see. on It happened to happen during the Capitol siege, this news breaking or coming over the wires. It, it sucks because Tom was, Tom was pretty great. Yeah, Tom was just one of those very, I mean, you will get, I suspect, a very, very good outline and sense of who Tom Prada was after you listen to this episode and you hear his friends and colleagues and his and his competitors kind of talk through um, their relationship with him and just how important um, he was in the press room. I mean, I think that on some level, we all hope that we are important members of the press room that that we like if we weren't there that it would matter that people would miss you that you know you contribute something other than just the work that you do but just as part of the the general um i don't know oeuvre of the of, of the of the room and tom was that and we and you felt that in particular the last few years because obviously he couldn't travel to as many tournaments and as many slams and and you missed it and i know that for you and i when we first you know really came on because we obviously came onto the tours or onto tennis professionally tennis writing uh, around the same time and we've been doing it for about a decade now but in the very beginning there were those kind of um, those reporters that did reach out, that did create space for you at the table. And maybe for some reporters, you had to earn it a little bit. Like, you know, they didn't, they Mm -hmm. didn't, you know. But once you were there, like they really, I don't know, made you feel a part of it. And for the American press corps in particular, even though he was beloved, you know, regardless of, of, of nationality of room. But amongst, you know, when we first started, the U.S., tennis press corps was robust, was incredibly active, looks very different than it does now, you know, for a variety of reasons that aren't related to anything other than life and health and all of these sorts of things. But Tom was one of those people. He, I don't know, I still remember talking to him for the first time after a press conference and just feeling like, oh my gosh, that's Tom Prada at the Wall Street Journal. Like he has one of those black and white Wall Street Journal composite (laughs) pictures. Like He's a really big deal. Um, And he was just so nice and so kind. And and over time, you know, one thing that will come up a lot, I think, in people's remembrances of Tom is that all of our memories, not all of, but so many of our memories that are related to him are surrounding food. Mm Mm-hmm like eating together and sharing meals together all over the globe, um, whether it's dumplings in Melbourne uh, at the Din Tai Fung there, being stranded in a strip mall in Toronto at midnight because no taxi would come to our weird wherever we were. And Tom was like fine with it. He was like like a kid, like a kid out, you know, past midnight being like, this is fun. Like, it's fine, you know. Um, but uh, but yeah, just kind of breaking bread with him and just, I don't know, when I think back on Tom and there's just so many little um, snapshots, little postcards of memories that I have of him, like him furiously checking his phone at Lake Congre after filing and waiting to get edits back and hope, you know, wanting to make sure there's no errors and all that. He was just, uh, yeah, he was a unique guy, a kind guy and so normal. Like, I mean, he had his own quirks, but he was just like a normal dude, which sometimes 
you don't really get so much in this sport. No. <laughs> We're all really quirky. Like, I think that I'm a very quirky person. I think you're a very quirky person. I think, you know, but Tom was just Tom. Yeah, he was very, he was at the same time, both very exacting, but also like very not, I wouldn't call him high maintenance or difficult really at all. He was like, he was, I think, an incredibly good person, useful person for me in the press room to sort of see and and as a sort of unspoken role model, maybe I should have spoken this more. Yeah. Uh, so it was yeah. A regret, but just somebody who worked incredibly hard, was competitive as heck about being a reporter in a way that I think really, I think speaks really I think well of the sort of American tennis reporter ethos, especially if that, you know, of the time when we were coming up, I don't think it's changed that much, but Tom was absolutely a standard bearer of that of someone who would go the extra mile to, who would knock on extra doors, call extra numbers, do super rigorous fact checking about stuff. When he wanted to make something essentially about tennis arcana into a front page wall street journal story, like that took work. And that was incredible dedication to his craft and, and love of the sport and also just love of storytelling and love of love of facts and love of reporting and love of love of the truth and stuff. And and you know, and he was and he was very much on a mission. I, he was somebody who absolutely would be very, you know, is he's one of the main signature proprietors of the move of like the walk and talk with the player uninvited <laughs> after, after, the after a press conference when they get up from the podium and talking to them about like I need to know what I don't know make an example what Coco Vandeweghe keeps in her second bag that she brings on court I remember him doing like a second bag story at some point but and he did it in a way that was like was very determined and very competitive but also like never really like you know throwing people off or never trying to I mean because there's lots of competitiveness in that press room you know certainly that can come off the wrong way but with Tom it only just sort of comes from like this I want to be the best sort of I mean I, I I owe it to myself and to my craft and to my paper and everybody and my readers and the subjects to be the best I can be and I think yeah that that's something I feel like I learned from in terms of and I don't think I'm anywhere as good at it as he was but yeah that sort of that sort of passion he put into it and all at the same time and I Doug Robson I know because I did part Doug's part later on in the show Doug was a long time you said today person who shared a lot more time sort of parallel tour with, with Tom than we did, you know, earlier part of or let, let's previous decade or two decades ago now, gosh. But, uh, but yeah, but the, he was somebody who just, I think, made the tennis world better and managed to be a tough reporter and still at the same time, never, never left anybody feeling like they were hard done by or whatever. You know, he yeah. was so, so respected by his subjects and by, you know, even when like USTA, when he like exposed the whole Taylor Townsend weight thing, which was, I think, one of his big signature reporting accomplishments. Um, so that's a story nobody was on top of until he blew that open. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine that it left like a bad taste in the USTA's mouth because he did it so, so precisely and so professionally and everything. So, yeah. Yeah. He, Tom had this incredible ability to walk that very fine balance of being competitive. Like the thing that I always remember about Tom and I haven't listened to Doug's conversation with you and I can't wait to do that because I always think of them in tandem. Yeah. I always think of them as like, at least for me, the way that, especially the way that I put both of them on, on pedestals in particular. Um, Cause I, th they were the two probably like big paper beat reporters that I was as, as close, like the closest to mm -hmm. um, when they were both on tour. Like they were like the Federer Nadal of like the American press court. They were like, I never knew what stories either of them were ever working on. And this is like, that's what I mean when I say competitive, like they kept it under wraps so well, you know, and part of it was that like they didn't want anybody else to even get a sniff of whatever story they're working on until it finally dropped. And that's something that you don't really get a sense of anymore. The way that with social media, 
with the the transparency of kind of press rooms and maybe a little bit more distance that I think reporters have from players now as well, um, that that it's a little bit easier to kind of get a sense of what somebody's working on at any given moment. You can tell by the questions they ask in press, like, you know, what they're tweeting about. Oh, you're so you're researching this thing, you know, like that sort of thing. And Tom was never that guy. Like, I don't know if I even remember him ever asking a press a question in press conference. Like, I know that he had, but I never remembered it because he was always working behind the scenes to get the information. Yeah, he was a total ninja. And meanwhile, he did it with this incredible love of the sport and for the love and respect for the subjects that he covered. And there was a passion in the way that Tom kind of saw not just tennis, but just the world. He was a glass half full guy, despite being racked by stress and anxiety and worried that he screwed something up all the time. Like those Lake Congre trying to order when Tom was like trying to like sort out his articles that he had just filed was always like, Tom, you need to, they're closing. You need to order. Uh, Lake Congre is a restaurant in, in Paris that's yeah. right around the corner from Roland Garros. So it's the site of many late night uh, dinners. But yeah, it was it was always something to watch. And he taught me a lot just by osmosis of being around it and understanding like, oh, this is how it's done. And, you know, I'm not a trained journalist. That won't shock many people. Um, but um, but but I learned from from some of the best in that room. And and Tom was one of them. Absolutely. So we have a bunch of people who we reached out to to share their thoughts on Tom. One of the, you know, obviously one of the tough things about going through this and and thank, lots of people were able to stay in touch with him and see him even rec- in recent months during the pandemic, which is great to hear. And you'll hear from many of them. Um, we are not, you know, as much as we love Tom, we're not Tom's, we weren't Tom's closest friends on tour. We're not going to say that we were, but lots of people who knew him better and sometimes not as well, but, but lots of people who knew him and, and cared about him and, and appreciated him. Uh, we reached out to you and you'll hear from a couple players as well on here. Um, and this sort of montage of remembrances, it's just, doing this episode sort of in as a poor substitute, I think for being able to sort of, you know, get together and raise a glass and celebrate Tom at one of his favorite, you know, Paris restaurants or whatever he would, he would appreciate. Um, Cause yeah, he did have that definitely Italian love of, of communal dining and stuff. <laughs> even while, like you said, even still while having one foot in the, uh, in the work world sometimes. I remember according to the time we had the two of us and maybe somebody else, but definitely Tom were all at uh, what you call the dirty dumplings place uh, in <laughs> yes. Melbourne, dumplings plus, and um, oh, I miss you, dumplings plus. And and Tom and I were, had both been like angling to talk to Amelie Moresmo, who at that point was coaching Andy Murray, and um, and he was just like he was getting so frustrated by the fact that like I was also had also been assigned to Andy Murray Amelie Moresmo story, which was a pretty obvious story, you know, at that at that moment, um, given what a story their collaboration was, and her hire being hired into the top ranks of men's tennis as a coach. Um, but just his like sort of fretting over that and while still like eating his dumplings, but having it seem feel like it was ruining his meal that it was, you know, this, this, uh, this moment. I, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stories people have and I'm hoping people who didn't well, get the chance to, to meet Tom get a better understanding of him through this, through this collection of, of recollections. And w- again, just illustratively, um, you know, kind of how one aspect of that whole Moresmo rivalry worked out was that, uh, like we were, or people were given, a roundtable. The Americans were given a roundtable opportunity with Moresmo, and Tom was like, "Absolutely not." He's like, yeah. "You guys have fun. I'm out of here." Like he did not want to share it. Like you know, and that is something that is very particular, I think, to the American press corps sometimes. Oh, yeah. But Tom was like, "No, why? Like sharing is losing. 
like if we if we're sharing quotes, what did I do here? I am offering no value. I will find another way. He did, which was great. And the other thing that I just wanted to make sure that to add is that above all else, above his his incredible skills as a, as a tennis writer, as a tennis reporter, um, as just a friend, first and foremost, he was such a family man. And I've seen so many videos of his sons, uh, Paul and Sean, uh, playing baseball. And he's like, look at that. Look at how amazing they are. You know, and I'm like, you're such a proud papa. Um, And the last kind of long, extensive conversation that I had with Tom was actually at Wimbledon um, maybe two years ago. Wouldn't wouldn't have been last year, but maybe the year before. Um, And we were outside of the main interview room in that little kind of collective hallway before you make a right into the hallways where the smaller interview rooms are and just talking and catching up and, you know, and he just kind of was talking about how, how incredible his wife, Rachel, um, who actually worked at the same law firm as I did. We overlapped, Mm. but we were in different offices and we found out later, Um, but how incredible she had been throughout everything. And and he kind of like, you know, got very emotional about it. He would always get very emotional and not just like, after he got sick talking about Rachel, but even before, like talking about his wife, he was so proud of her, like so amazed that that this woman married him. Like there, he was just he was all heart and all love. And it was just always an incredible like watching him talk about his family was like everything you needed to know about who Tom Prada was. Just like I wrote, just the, the heart, the size of a lion. Like he just he was all love. The last thing before I hand it over to the to the group or pass the pass the mic here. Uh, is that yeah? Tom was had been ill for his last several years on tour. I think he was diagnosed in 2016, I believe. And so, but yeah. he kept he kept working, and a lot of certainly readers or more casual followers of his on Twitter. I don't think he was very actually very public about it on Twitter. Um, wouldn't have noticed really a dip in his work because he he was so determined. And even as things got infinitely more difficult for him in terms of troubles with his vision or troubles, you know, other sorts of neurological things going on, um, as he struggled with this really awful debilitating disease that he had. He still was traveling. He still was, you know, doing interviews and working and stuff. And even when it was really tough for him to, you know, type or do basic, basic things we take for granted as writers, you know, he still had that kind of, he never lost his, he never uh, cut himself much slack as as a, as a, as a, as a worker and his duty, he still wanted to be just as good as he possibly could be at all times. And that also, that was tough to see in a lot of times, but also again, an inspiration and just one, you know, one more inspirational thing about, about Tom. So thank you, Courtney, for your part here. We're going to do a sort of uh, relay of, of remembrances here for much people that I will introduce as they come up. So I think the way we're going to organize this is to have our speakers, their clips, their tributes they sent in played in alphabetical order by last name, which means we start here with one of the players we have included, who was up for doing this, Victoria Azarenka. Mika? Well, as, as I kind of tweeted out, obviously we, uh, you know, spent so many years uh, on the tour traveling and, you know, you, you see so many familiar faces in, in press conferences. And I felt that um, with Tom, we always had like a, uh, an interesting connection. I felt that he was a brilliant uh, writer and he was really a, a big fan of our sport so he always wanted to make you know exceptional uh work and and uh, and get to um to interview people that were also really interesting and i remember that one of the pieces that he's done on me where um 
even like preparation to this interview was kind of cool because they're like, what do you want to do? Something that would highlight um, a side of me that, that people maybe didn't know so much. So I came out with the idea of doing, you know, graffiti tour in Brooklyn. And we, uh, we went around uh, many different places and had a, a great lunch. So it was very like uh, organic day, uh, which didn't really feel like interview. And I thought that And as I said, this memory will uh, I will always remember because it was one of my favorite um, interviews that I've done, and um, that moment that um, that was pretty special. So um, I will always remember that. That I unfortunately didn't didn't really follow. You know, this year um, I just saw the news and then I kind of followed up with uh, what what, uh, Tom's been going through. It was really um, sad to hear, but um, the time that that I had with with him was was really. Uh, amazing and that's really you know what I what I can write I don't didn't really know him personal which uh, that much um, just just uh, of his work and uh, I think there's a lot more people that will be sharing a lot of more of Tom's you know uh, personality and and uh, their experience with him but mine mine was that that that's definitely going to be a highlight Thank you, Vika. And next up, we have Carl Bialik. Carl? I knew Tom as a freelancer who was the consummate colleague to everyone. Tom held himself to the highest standards, while simultaneously showing generosity and kindness to people he could have viewed only as his competitors. At each major, he somehow produced two weeks of superb and extensive coverage while finding time to sit in the seats at matches and press conferences, catch up with his tennis friends, make new ones in the media center, help everyone to do their job better, see people and places in the host city, and occasionally even hit some balls. Tom won every Grand Slam event he covered. Tom excelled at ideas and at writing. I remember him most for his commitment to the truth. Every detail had to be correct, and he'd check every way he could with every moment he had until the story ran. And the essence of the story had to be true, too. He'd doubt it and check it constantly with any evidence he could muster, including data he'd dig deep to unearth. The result is a body of work that drew in people who were new to the sport, while ringing true to colleagues who knew it intimately, making us wonder why we'd never thought to tell that story and admit to ourselves we wouldn't have told it as well. I spent more time with Tom playing tennis than watching it. We were closely matched, which often led to tense moments late in close sets. Tom sometimes grew angry at himself for errors. He never made the error of treating me or anyone else unfairly or unkindly. Tom knew an essential truth too well to doubt it over a flubbed forehand. When you're sharing a court with people you love, playing a game you love, everyone wins. Thank you, Carl. Next, we have John Branch. John? This is John Branch from the New York Times, and I'd like to say a few words about Tom. I can't say that I knew Tom extremely well. I'm sure there are people who will speak about him that knew him much better than I did. Uh, But Tom was one of my favorite people. I, I think we saw a little bit of ourselves in one another. I got to know him when I covered Wimbledon a couple of times and the French Open a couple of times. And sometimes I was there by myself. 
Tom covered those tournaments usually by himself for the Wall Street Journal. So we hung out together and we competed against each other. And we had some things in common. Um, I'm a little bit older than Tom was, uh, but we both had young families at home. Uh, we both had two kids, three years apart. And I think we both appreciated and saw the good fortune that we had in the chance to cover these things. You know, I think Tom and I sort of laughed and, you know, thought who has it better than we do. But we also both had a, a strong sense or a strong pull from home um, and an appreciation for what we might be missing there. Um, but we made sure we had fun um, away from work and away from the cubicles. Uh, we went out and had a good time. Nothing too outrageous, but I do remember going out with Scott Price um, and then going to Scott's apartment near the Louvre and walking out on the balcony. And Tom and I both looking at each other thinking, oh my gosh, I mean, who's got it better than we do right now? And the answer was Scott, apparently, because he had a, a lot nicer place than we did. Um, one of the things I loved about Tom, besides just his great attitude about everything, was he. we both had eyes for kind of quirky stories. And I think Tom was a little bit jealous that I had a little bit more freedom at the New York Times writing about things like the the laundry at the French Open um, or the ball kids or the hawk that Wimbledon, Wimbledon uses to chake, chase the, uh, the pigeons away. But I remember distinctly covering Wimbledon in 2014, and I cannot get the PR people there at the All England Club to engage with me on a story I wanted to do in any way. I met with them upstairs. I remember that, and I remember thinking – that they said they could help me maybe in a few days. And I wanted to do a story about strawberries and where the strawberries came from for Wimbledon and was willing to go out to the farms. I, you know, let's, let's do this upright. And they were really strange about it. Um, it turns out they were running interference for Tom. That, <laughs> and, and, and really, why not? Tom covered Wimbledon every year. Um, I was just a guy that popped in every once in a while. Um, he was a tennis writer. And so the day that Tom's story about strawberries at Wimbledon published a wonderful story, the press office called me and they said, how can we help you? <laughs> I was so mad, but not, not, not mad at Tom. You could never be mad at Tom. I, I moved to California a few years ago and, and we stayed in touch now and then. And since he, since he passed, I've gone through our correspondence he emailed me out of the blue once when I was in Montana in 2015. And I must have tweeted something about Montana saying where I was. And he wrote me an email saying he was jealous, that he loved Montana, even though he had never been. It was his favorite place on earth of all the places that he had never been. And he was somewhat infatuated with the idea of Montana. And I remember as we were uh, going back and forth, when I was in Missoula and he was probably in New York, I got a call from Jason Stallman. And Jason asked me if I wanted to cover the U.S. Open that year. Um, I hadn't covered tennis in a couple of years. And so my next note to Tom was, guess what? I'll see you in New York uh, in a few weeks. One of the ones that really sticks with me is a call or an email that Tom sent in 2016 where he put in the subject line, nothing but brick. And he was um, writing about a, a freelancer of, of ours at the New York Times that we used often named Michael Brick who had just died at the age of 41. In the email that Tom sent, he just wrote, I can't get over Brick's passing. And he wrote, Jesus, 41. Uh, and as we went back and forth, he said this about Mike, 
He said, he was one of those characters you can't help but like. When I first read him without having met him, I pretty much hated his writing, thought it was way overdone. Then I met him and realized that's who this guy is, and he's being honest about it. That's his voice, and it all made sense, and I enjoyed him from there on. Dude had a great-sounding laugh. And I love the fact that Tom picked up on Mike Brick's laugh, of all things. What's strange about that email, looking back, is that just a few months later, Tom himself was diagnosed with brain cancer. And I remember he called me to tell me about it. And we traded emails now and again, and I was always hopeful he was going to somehow get past it. Um, I stopped covering tennis, and I had moved to California, so I never really had a chance to see him in person anymore. But I would follow his byline, and whenever I saw his byline at a major, I presumed things were better, and I would usually send him a note, and he'd say, yeah, things are going okay. Um, He sent me a note when Matt Futterman was hired by the New York Times and said, I want to come too. And I said, I wish you would. I wish wish this could have worked out that way. Uh, He had such a great way about him. He had such a great writing style. He was so lyrical, and he was patient and classy um, with so many great attributes, both professionally and personally, that I always really liked um, and really appreciated. So my condolences to his family, first and foremost. I can tell you from experience how much he missed you when he was away. And to all those who knew Tom better than I did, I hope this, I hope his memory inspires all of us to find joy in the work and to always keep your mind on home. Thank you. Thank you, John. Next, we have Mary Carrillo. Mary? Uh, This is Mary Carrillo. In recent weeks, I've gotten a bunch of emails and texts from uh, friends of mine who don't even follow tennis, but they forwarded me Tom Parada's sweet, gentle, heartbreaking final story, and they wanted to know if I knew that guy. It was an honor to tell them all that I did. Now I'm I'm going through a bunch of his old emails Uh, Just some back-and-forth stuff between Tom and me over the years, like the one from 2018 where he wrote, I'm doing great, just got cleared for the French Open. See you soon. But what strikes me most about just about all of these emails is that when he'd write me and ask for my time for some article he was writing, the last line invariably would say, I promise to make it as quick as possible. And then we'd start talking and catching up on each other, and I'm the one who'd keep him on the line. And then, you know, if he'd email again sometime later, again, he'd promise it won't take long. I wish it would have been a lot longer. Tom, I promise you, so many of us would have given you all the time in the world. You were a hell of a writer, but more than anything, you were loved, and that's your legacy. We loved you. Thank you, Mary. Next, we have the second player who is up for participating, Marty Fish. Marty? You know, probably the longest uh, interview I've done, you know, it was a couple of times that we had, we met and then, and then probably a few emails and texts from then, you know, just sort of go over it and get it right. He, uh, he came to, I remember I was staying in DC there in Georgetown at that four seasons there, which is, which is one of my, what it was always one of my favorite stops, favorite hotels of the year. So we, he would come over and, and uh, we'd have breakfast together and we'd just sort of talk about it. He had a, um, a history of it as well. And, and so we could sort of swap stories and, and, and talk about our experiences and, and what was good, you know, what we did 
to kind of get through the episodes and learn from each other a little bit. And, and he was a big, you know, kind of inspiration and, and help throughout uh, that 2015 there to, you know, just to kind of finalize my tennis career. And, and um, I'll never forget that, you know, because there's not many interviews that you do where somebody can sort of speak in on the same sort of topic and, and understands, you know, usually it's tennis, obviously. And you're, you know, you guys are usually just asking questions about, you know, either how, you know, your, your results or, or how, um, you know, matches or, or things coming up or how you just played or whatever. And, and it's never really about, um, personal things. And that was a really personal and, and something that was really something that I wanted people to know, um, because I felt like if I could help any, if I could help one person, I wanted you know, I wanted to do that. And, and he was the first one that we kind of went to on that. It was before the Players' Tribune piece that we did. Um, that was kind of the first real in-depth um, story that I did with anyone about my uh, full, full uh, uh, sort of story of, of the mental health from, from 20, 2012 all the way till then. Um, you know, and again, that was uh, beginning of the summer. I'd actually, I didn't even play singles in that tournament. I only played doubles. So I had a lot of time and kept play with Grigor. And I just remember I had a lot of time and, and it was just kind of a nice, a nice time of my life and, and sort of winding everything down. What, which, what felt was on my own terms when, you know, and kind of in reality, it probably was quick, you know, was, was uh, shortened up a little bit just with my career or just a little bit because of the mental health stuff. But I did take a bunch of time in between, you know, 2012 and 2015 to, to kind of get myself back to a, a spot where I could get back on the court. And, um, you know, so, so yeah, it was a, a really personal um, story and, and I could just draw a lot of, um, I could draw off him a lot of uh, stories that he had as well and, and, you know, personal sort of things that he felt as well. And so it was nice. You just never really come across that, um, that often when um, it's not about tennis, you're not really doing a story about tennis much at all. And, and he can relate and um, I'll never forget that. You know, I mean, I just remember, I just remember it. I don't know why, dude. Like it just, it, 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 it resonated with me, um, his story. And, and just, like I said, it's just, there's not, there weren't very many times when you can, um, sit across from a journalist and talk, not talk about tennis and still, still have them make an impact, um, on how you felt and, and just sort of make you feel like you're not alone. And hopefully I made him feel like he's not alone and in that whole thing. And, um, you know, it's just not a lot of those. And, you know, so I just, I remember, I remember where we were sitting. We had one, we had, I think he came twice. One time we sat outside and uh, one time we sat inside and I just, you know, we just had lunch like friends and or breakfast like friends. And, and it was, it was really nice. So yeah, I, I was happy to, you know, to, when you wrote that email, I was, I, I, I loved um, to help. So um, I'm glad you're glad you're doing it. Thank you, Marty. Next up is Bonnie Ford. Bonnie. Hi, Ben and Courtney. It's Bonnie Ford. I'm usually pretty good at speaking extemporaneously, but I've written something and I'm just going to read it. I remember Tom's laugh. It started in his belly and traveled upward and involved his whole body. Our friend Doug Robson called it a volcanic eruption. He'd either throw his head back to let it out 
or drop his chin and just keep vibrating with whatever had set him off. I remember it because I heard it a lot. Tom took his job seriously, and he took his relationships very seriously. But he reveled in the absurdities of life, and he didn't take himself overly seriously, which is one of the reasons I loved him. He was so accessible. He could talk to anyone. Anyone could approach him. As Jason Gay said in his tribute column, Tom was never too frazzled to take a second for someone, even on deadline. In a world where people compete to draw attention to themselves, Tom would often slip into a press conference unnoticed, sit in the back or to the side, and quietly ask the most thoughtful question. His work spoke for itself. Tom was game. He was game to get up early to play tennis, even knowing that it would make a long workday even longer. He was game when I proposed that we steal a couple hours away from the Aussie Open and take a side trip to the Melbourne Zoo to see marsupials. He was game for gathering a group for dinner and drinks at whatever late hour we walked out of the press room. And I now re regret every time I said no, which was not very often. That game quality and his native curiosity were his best assets as a journalist. He didn't have an agenda. He was game to explore any topic, and the people he interviewed and pressed for details understood that and responded. Being game also served him well as he fought a vicious disease. When he came back to work, obviously weakened, he did not want our sympathy. He spoke matter-of-factly about his condition. He knew what would sustain him was our friendship, the singular nutty normalcy of tennis's traveling circus feeling the rhythms of a game he loved and wrote about so well. Tom was all about connection and generosity and sharing. He did it through his day-to-day -day work process, through his writing, and in his personal life as well. He was endearingly excited to introduce me to his wife, Rachel, when she came to Roland Garros. I remember meeting them on the steps that led out of the old press center in Philippe Chatrier a moment burned into my mind for a happy reason, how obvious and deep their bond was just from their body language. I grieve for her and for their sons. I know the best way to honor my friend is to carry his generous, accessible spirit forward and to preserve his laughter, his distinctive laughter in my memory. Thanks so much. It's really good to have an opportunity to talk about Tom. Hey, Ben and Courtney. I had a postscript. There's little pieces of Tom all over my computer. They're in my back emails and my back Twitter messages and my back Facebook messages. I'm really bad about cleaning that stuff out, and sometimes that's a good thing because I found a couple messages from Tom. I was on the tennis beat sort of two different times in recent years, and I met Tom somewhere in the 2007 or 8 range. I was a beat reporter for a few years for ESPN.com. Then I was away for a while, and then I came back. And I found this really touching email, which is just so classic of Tom. He would send me pictures every now and then, uh, when I was off the beat saying, hey, we miss you. 
But this message, uh, which he sent from Paris in June of 2011, says, had dinner tonight with Doug and Scott Price, that's Doug Robson, and we all agreed on one thing, parens, okay, many things, but one thing in particular, and parens, we miss having you on the circuit, B. He always called me B. Not intended to make you feel bad, but good. Hope you're doing well and talk soon. And then my other favorite, he sent in uh, 2018. We got to see each other for the first time in, in quite a while. Um, I had written to him telling him uh, how great it was to see him at Roland Garros. And he wrote back about a night when I believe, um, pretty sure from the context that uh, he and I and Matt Wolanski, who was then the tennis editor at ESPN.com, had gone out for an evening. So he wrote me after that and said, I hope this doesn't seem crazy, but last night was great. And I can't thank you enough for hanging out. I love hanging out always have, but after my disease, it fell away from me with depression. I've had a great doctor for that too, and now, after many treatments, and knock on wood, a healthy head, I feel so much better, more and more like myself, and I enjoy hanging out with people more than ever. You two are great. Thanks for all the fun. Best, Tom. Now, those two emails you know, they they sound pretty routine in a sense um, in any long friendship, but they really weren't because that gap in between where Tom was so sick and we didn't see each other, there was still this, this bond and we picked right up where we had left off. And it's not as if Tom was only grateful after he got sick. He was grateful all the time as witnessed by that first email, he was consistently grateful. So that is another thing that I'm going to really try and and carry forward with me to honor Tom. Thank you, Bonnie. Next up is Matt Futterman. Matt. The closest I came to winning a match against Tom Parada was on a warm summer morning five or six years ago on the 119th Street tennis courts in Riverside Park in Manhattan. Tom was a better player than me. Let's be clear about that. He played big on the court, bigger than a six foot two inch frame. He had long arms, and if he came to the net behind a decent approach shot, he was very tough to pass. He was very consistent, if not overpowering, from the baseline with a solid first serve. Still, I should have beaten him occasionally. His soft spinning second serve was easy to manage. He could step in and pound it to his backhand. I have smooth strokes that give away my privileged upbringing in New York's Westchester suburbs, in a town where the tennis team finished first or second in the state so many times, in a region that that churned out Division I players and the occasional pro. I wasn't one of them, not even close. But all those lessons landed me on a Division III college team. I have a good game that can best be described as good enough to lose to some pretty decent players. Tom was in that category too. Like me, he had fallen in love with tennis as a child. He dreamed of being better than he was, and he loved nothing more than trying like hell to beat a good friend as often as possible. 
He knew my biggest weakness was between my ears, that serving at 4-4 and 30-all against a tough opponent, there was a decent chance I would whack my second serve two feet long. I was serving at 5-1 that day when I came oh so close. I lost the first couple of points on errors in that eighth game, or seventh game I guess I should say. Probably lost it in the eighth game too. That's usually what happens. Tom smelled blood. He stopped missing. I had pasted the lines for six games, but now I was on my heels. It was 5-5 before too long, and then he won the tiebreaker. You had me, he said as we met at the net. I should have won, I told him. Yeah, you should have. He was kind of disgusted with me. We played dozens of times before he got sick. After the first surgery left him with a slight limp and issues with his vision, I told him I wanted to get him back on the court. This was my chance. I can kick your ass now, I said. Not yet, he told me. That banter became a running joke of ours. With each setback, his loss of balance or speech, even the onset of cognitive issues, which I told him would allow me to cheat on the score without him really knowing it, I said we needed to play because maybe he was at the point where I could win. Not yet, he would always say. He had my number. He knew it, I knew it, and he didn't want to give it up. Then, this fall, barely able to walk, struggling even to put together a sentence, he relented, sort of. We were sitting in the courtyard of his Brooklyn apartment building. I think I can win now, I told him. Probably, he said. It was the last time I would be with him. Tom was a Catholic and I am a Jew. Our faiths hold different visions of the afterlife. In my dreams, though, there is a beautiful center court up there in the heavens, and one day we will play again, even if I have to lose to him for all eternity. I swear I would give nearly anything for just one more of those sun-splashed summer mornings on the court with my friend. Thank you, Matt. Next up is Jason Gay. Jason. Hi, Ben. Hi, Courtney. Thanks so much for spending some time talking about our friend Tom, who we all miss already. Uh, I would just say, like, with regard to Tom's, you know, writing talent, the beautiful thing is you can go and read it all. You know, you can see what made him special. He was somebody who could write these beautiful deadline stories, you know, not just giving you the bare bones facts about what happened in a match, but all this historical context and perspective. He knew the players, but also the parents and the coaches and the trainers and the coaches before the coaches and the trainers before the trainers. And he just knew and loved and had an appreciation for it all. And he could also write these marvelously idiosyncratic pieces about tournaments. I mean, events that you think every story's been told a thousand times, right? You know, he could always find these fresh and fun angles and bring these events to life. Um, but I think anybody who worked with him and knew him a little bit as you know, we all did. Uh, he, he, the thing you remember about Tom was his generosity. Um, he was incredibly generous with people he worked with, people he was competing against uh, in, in, in newspaper writing. Um, he just had a 
incredible kindness and willingness to share his knowledge, his experience, his enthusiasm with everybody who came into his orbit. To be around Tom was to want to just kind of be a better person because he was a good person. Um, And then just the last thing I'll leave you with that, you know, I, I think a good memory to think of Tom is a couple summers ago. I mean, I guess the last time we were all at Wimbledon, um, his wife, Rachel, and his two boys, uh, Paul and Sean, had come into town for the final. And I remember Tom leaving center court and going up the hill uh, and getting a pizza at the takeout and bringing this pizza up there and sitting up there on Henman Hill with Rachel, Sean, and Paul. And he was just the happiest guy in the world. You know, he could have been right there ringside watching this epic five-setter. And I know we don't love all the five-setters, but I know, I know. But this was a pretty good one. And the fact that he could do this with the people he loved the most in the world, I just, I want to remember that uh, because it was a really lovely moment and really, to me, signaled what he was all about. So thank you, thank you for spending some time on on Tom Prada. And, and to anybody who's just curious about him, go and read some of the stuff because it's, it's quite lovely. Thank you, Jason. Next up is Nick McCarville. Nick. Hi, Ben. Hi, Courtney. Thank you so much for doing this. This is going to be one of the most special, special episodes of NCR. This is Nick McCarville. I worked uh, most closely, actually physically close to Tom Parada when I was at USA Today for two years. We actually were often sat next to each other. The Wall Street Journal and the USA Today um, press desks were often paired together for whatever reason. So I got to do eight slams literally next to Tom. And uh, honestly, I've never quite met someone like Tom Prada. I I tweeted when he passed away that he had both the warmest of hearts and the sharpest of elbows because you have to in our business. And the way that he was so diligent and um, prepared and you know researched these weird angles and was always in the hallways talking to coaches and trainers and agents and getting into you know the true world of tennis beyond just the main press room beyond the big headlines that's what i so admired about him and i loved that he was always doing quirky stories stories that were both kind of weird and strange but also had themes to them larger impacts on the sport um i was actually just looking through my old emails with tom mostly from 2015 and 16 and <laughs> I I emailed him to congratulate him on going to Yarko Niemann's retirement, which I think a lot of tennis fans will remember was this big thing in Helsinki and Federer was flown in to bid Yarko Niemann farewell, which was <laughs> just this, it sounded like a, such a, a, a weird event and this farewell match and Federer and, you know, Yarko Niemann obviously was a, a great player, but it was such a Tom Parada story to go and cover that and to do it in Helsinki. I I miss him terribly. I think you look at the outpouring on Twitter after he passed and what you guys are doing here. This is someone I said sharpest of elbows, but I also said warmest of hearts. And 
When I interned at Tennis Magazine in 2007, he was someone who made me feel welcomed and like I had a, a future in this sport and in this industry. Um, and he, from all accounts, was the most incredible father as laid bare in that beautiful piece that he wrote at the end of November talking about the silver linings of COVID and the chance that he got to spend with his with his kids. Um, thank you. Thank you guys for doing this. And moreover, thank you to Tom for a legacy of warmth and respect, of hard work, of thinking ahead, of not ever, ever worrying about if a story is too small or too strange and chasing a thread and then weaving it. Um, he did it with the most beautiful of colors and prose. And I, I will miss him dearly. And I am so appreciative of the way that he impacted me in my career and to his family and to those that loved him. He is someone that did tremendous amounts of good in the world. And please take that to heart as his memory lives on. Thanks. Thank you, Nick. Next up is Doug Robson. Doug? Well, the first thing is just a personal thing, and that's his laugh. He had this giant, just hearty, goofy laugh that seemed to consume his whole body. It would kind of almost start at his feet and erupt up, and you could, I mean, he would shake. It was volcanic in a way. Um, and uh, I loved that part of his personality. Now, I remember. Yeah, and coming on the scene and breaking in and <clears throat> just what an exacting and curious and original thinker he was, you know, devoted to the truth and to facts uh, and a very exacting uh, reporter and writer. And he was a great, great reporter, you know, a great writer, able to synthesize and explain things with clarity. I really appreciated. Um you know, just as a colleague, you know, very positive presence in the press room. And he was, what I would say, one of my better friends uh, on the tour. And, you know, we would, at some point, uh, before some of the big tournaments, he had these foodie friends that lived in Europe. And instead of plotting which interviews we needed to get, we would spend some time plotting which restaurants we might be able to barnstorm during the, you know, the French open or Wimbledon. And I think he knew that he knew the secret that the best stories at a slam happen in the first week and the best meals take place mm -hmm. <laughs> in the second week. <laughs> Fish was a restaurant that Bonnie Ford turned us on to in Paris. And I mean, they came and go, I can't remember all the names of the different restaurants that we hit. Um, Cause these Saudi friends were like, really in the know. So it wouldn't necessarily be the same restaurant year to year, but, um, we always tried to find time to, to make, uh, one of those special meals happen, you know, in the, usually in the latter half of, of the tournament. Um, you know, and just, you know, he was, Tom was a really competitive guy, but he had a, a kindness and a humility about him that made it tolerable. I mean, I think, I remember, of course, sleuthing around 
and chasing down stories and, you know, showing up at some area of the venue and looking across the room or the hallway and seeing Tom. And then he would look at me and we would kind of nervously laugh and roll our eyes um, and be like, ah, he's here. What is he doing? What is he up to? And the, the anxiety and the paranoia and the terror that would follow, like, what the hell is Parada working on now? <laughs> I, I'm going to wake up some morning and I see a story and be like, darn it, that's what I should have written. <laughs> yeah, he did raise the bar. He, he motivated me to look for those different stories and those different angles. And, um, you know, and this is, a, this is a, a, a fond memory as well. You know, he had written a story about this, Phenom five-year-old that was training at Patrick Mortaglu's uh, camp in 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 France in the outskirts of Paris, and um, and I decided that I was going to write a story on the same character. And you know, my editors at a larger platform were gaga about it, and they blew it up, and it was an A one story. And Tom never let me forget that he had written the story first <laughs> and only by virtue of being at a smaller platform did it not get the exposure that it deserved. But he constantly ribbed me about that, but in the best possible way. I mean, you know, there was no, there was no hard feeling about it. It was just fun and funny. I mean, I, I really admired the way that he soldiered on um, after, you know, his di- his initial diagnosis. And, you know, to me that also just showed how much, he loved and worked at what he did. I mean, he, you know, he was compromised, but he continued to produce good stories and to travel and to, yeah, do the work that he loved. And that, that, that really, that meant a lot to me to see him do that. And I got to spend some more time with his family in the last couple of years and some time with his, his wife and his kids. And, um, even, yeah, as late as, as, uh, late September, you know, that was the last time I, I was able to see Tom. I was on my way back from from New York, and I stopped in, and you know, we, we were able to, he was able to come out and walk a couple blocks to a neighborhood uh, cafe, coffee place, and we sat in the courtyard on a really pleasant fall day and, and had lunch, and, and yeah, just smiled at each other. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll always remember that, so... Yeah, I'll really be missed. Doug, next up is Louisa Thomas. Louisa. Tom was this incredible mix of fierce integrity and real tenderness. He cared about tennis. He cared about writing and reporting and getting it right. He really, really cared about his family. I never saw him light up as much as he did when he was talking about his boys. I think everybody liked and admired him, and many of us loved him as I did. Even so, I don't think he always got the credit he deserved. I was once reading an essay about David Foster Wallace, and there was a passage on whether Wallace had, as he had sometimes been accused, been a little loose with the truth. The author of this essay had gone into Wallace's papers at the Ransom Institute, an archive at the University of Texas, and mentioned as evidence of Wallace's research an article from The Atlantic. It was written by Tom Parada a few months before Wallace's famous story about Roger Federer came out. If you are a tennis writer, you have not only read that Wallace story, but hear about it constantly, even from the most casual fans. It can get a little old, to be honest. 
Anyway, what I learned from this essay was that in his papers, Wallace had a copy of Tom's article. He underlined it, took, took notes, and used it for the basis of his passage in the piece about how technology had changed the game. I don't know if Tom knew that, and I kind of doubt he would have cared, but it seemed to me fitting that maybe the fancy words were Wallace's, but the guts of that famous piece, the facts animating the argument, were from Tom. We've all been learning from him all along, after all. Thank you, Louisa. And last up, closing us out, we have John Wertheim. John? I've been thinking about Tom a lot, like so many of us have. He was a lovely guy, a dogged reporter, a consummate pro, and if if you didn't know his work, um, all of that was borne out by this outpouring we've had on social media from colleagues, from readers, and, and from players. I'm thinking what one of the beauties of tennis, of course, is that it is a meritocracy. You win and your ranking goes up. You lose and it doesn't. You don't have to please a coach or a general manager or get the quarterback or the point guard to pass you the ball. You just have to win match point and uh, you get the check next to your name on the scoreboard and you go on to the next round. And now that we have Hawkeye for whatever it is, more than a decade now, line calls aren't in dispute, injustice it's just not something we know. And I wonder if that isn't part of what's going on. Tom's passing, his cancer, his fight, his his early departure, it was an injustice. It was intolerably unfair. And uh, in the sport of tennis, we don't have a lot of unfairness, but this was one. Um, I have a lot of personal memories of Tom, meals and late nights, and we used to meet often for Chinese food. Pete Bodo and I recently had lunch at Tom's apartment before the holidays, and it was, you know, it had become clear he was struggling, but it didn't offset his mood or diminish his desire to uh, show off his, his sons and go out on the sidewalk and watch them play. Um, but I wanted to share a professional memory. I went and dug up a story Tom wrote. There are many to choose from. But at the U.S. Open in 2012, Tom got wind that USTA player development was concerned about a player's weight and they were threatening to stop her funding, to shut off her funding or curtail it anyway, if she didn't lose weight. Uh, The player was a teenager and this offended Tom. It outraged him. Um, I remember him absolutely livid, pacing how angry he was and what was this doing to the player's psyche and what were the long-term impact of this and it was so unfair and Tom went about reporting it. He didn't want to do a hot take. He wanted to report this as a story. And he realized it might bruise some relationships, not least with the USTA and then Patrick McEnroe, who was then the head of player development, and uh, uh, other people who he knew he would pass and probably considered friends, but it, it didn't. he didn't care. It didn't get in the way of his work. And the story, Why the USTA Benched America's Best Junior, was published in 2012 during the US Open. It featured on all the morning shows and there was reporting and backtracking and it was one of those stories that really made an impact it was a class in in journalism not just in tennis journalism or sports journalism but this is this is how you do the job this was uh professional competence and um tom went after a story he got his facts he let people defend themselves and then he held them accountable it's uh it's a real loss you hope his work lives on you also hope this journalistic spirit and sensibility lives on we're gonna we're gonna miss him a lot thanks and thanks uh for the opportunity to do this thank you john 
Thank you, everyone, who shared their thoughts and remembrances of Tom. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you were lucky enough to know Tom, I hope this helped bring you closer in this time of remoteness to other people who cared about him and loved him and really just respected him a ton as a colleague and as a friend. And if you weren't lucky enough to know Tom, I hope that this made you feel for a bit like you had that chance because it really was something pretty cool to get to know this guy. Uh, Tom was one of our favorites, and one of his favorites, you may know, was Bruce Springsteen. So here's a bit of Bruce to play us out. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Tom, and we'll see you soon. Tonight my bag is packed Tomorrow I'll walk these tracks That'll lead me across the border Tomorrow my love and I We'll sleep neath all burnt skies Somewhere across the border We'll leave behind my dear Pain and sadness we found here And we'll drink from Bravo's muddy waters Where the sky grows gray and white We'll meet on the other side There across the border For you I build a house Upon a greasy hill Somewhere across the border Where pain and memory Pain and memory have been stilled There across the border Sweet blossoms fill the air Pastures of gold and green Roll down into cool clear waters And in your arms neath open skies I'll kiss the sorrow from your